And I'm going to be reading this morning out of the New King James Version. I'm going to be reading Matthew chapter 1. And we'll be reading starting in verse 18. It says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. But while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to, them, to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. Verse 21 says, and she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, Yeshua, for he will save his people from their sins. So all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. Then Joseph, being aroused from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took to him his wife and did not know her until she had brought forth her firstborn son. And obediently, it says, and he called his name Jesus. This is the word of God. Father, we thank you this morning for the gift of your word that has been given to us in order to give us a vision of you, to show us you. This is not just for us to orient our lives around certain behaviors, but may we not miss the purpose of your word. We know that these words testify of you. So Jesus, reveal your son Jesus to us today. God, reveal your son Jesus to us today. We pray you would speak to us. Holy Spirit, I pray you would use... Um, all the efforts that I've put into this sermon preparation, I pray you would use it for your glory and for the edifying of your people today. And ultimately, again, that we would hear about and we would know Jesus better. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Um, this morning, I want to preach from the topic, Jesus the Savior. Jesus the Savior. You know, today we said that considering that tomorrow is Christmas Eve and been working on that message and our music has really been working on, on kind of ramping it up, we said that today was uh, going to be more of like a stripped down. We had an acoustic band. So I kind of got an acoustic sermon title for you today too. Normally I got something catchy and creative this morning. It's good enough though. It's Jesus the Savior. Amen. All right, all right. Yeah, I don't think you can make that any more creative and awesome. So Jesus the Savior. It took me hours to think of that title right there. That's certainly who we see here revealed in Matthew chapter 1, certainly revealed in the Christmas story is Jesus the Savior. But how did we get to that point? How did we get to the point to where this Messiah that was to be born would be called Jesus, which means to save, Savior? Well, we just read it there in Matthew 1. This is Joseph's angle, the husband's version of the story, which often is different from the wife's version of any story. But this is Joseph's version of this incarnation, of this miracle. His betrothed wife, she's conceived. She's gotten pregnant. What? What's going on here? Joseph is thinking, I'm not responsible for that. Who is? And while he's stressing out, thinking about these things, he goes into a deep sleep. And what a great dream to have. 
sort of like a dream to take him out of his living nightmare, so to speak. And in this dream, God gives him a great revelation. Joseph, what you thought was a setback is actually a setup for something awesome. What's conceived in Mary is of the Holy Spirit. This is the Messiah. This is the Messiah. And God gives Joseph some instructions in this dream. One of the instructions that God gives Joseph is what he is to name this child of his future wife that he's commanded to marry. Um, what a great blessing to have. If you've ever had to name a human before, it's quite a task. I think it's one of the things that people don't really prep you for uh, with parenting is branding a human being. It's kind of a big deal. And I've had three kids uh, with my wife's help. Uh, and um, I've named them all three with my wife's help. Um, and it's quite the task. You know, there's a lot of weights that you carry, a lot of responsibilities that you bear when you, become, when you bring someone into the world, and one of which is, what are they going to be called? <laughs> and you got to think hard about it, because if, like me, you have like some PTSD from grade school, there are, there are some cruel fallen children out there, and they are able to take just the sweetest of names and make them into like the darkest insults. You got to be careful. So, you know, you got to think long and hard, and you got to really be prayerful about it. It's quite a weight, because once you name it, there's no going back. It's like a tattoo, okay? Like, maybe you can get it removed, but it's, it's pretty, it's dry. It's done. That's their name. And so, this is a big weight that a parent has to, has to carry, and here we see the intentionality of God in what the Messiah would be called, what his name would be. Um, this isn't haphazard. This isn't kind of random. We, we know the name Jesus coming from the derivative in Hebrew, Yeshua. It was a common name in Jesus' time, but that's certainly not the reason why God is saying, here's what you're going to name the kid. Joseph, take the weight off. I got the name for you. This isn't the reason why God is saying to name him Jesus. It's not because it's common. It's because God is saying something. God has always been saying a lot to us since even we broke our relationship with him. But one of the most key messages that God has stuck to in his communication to his fallen creation is the truth of who he is. If there's one thing God really wants us to know, it's who he is and what he's like. Like in my life, Man, I am so unsure of so many things, especially in my faith and relationship with God. I feel like every day I come up with a new verse or a new question that I don't have the answer to. But I'm learning to continually grow in my confidence in what I do know about who God is. Anybody else know what that's like? It's like what God has showed me about himself still is the same despite what I don't understand. You know, this is the way that God would often operate in the Old Testament, certainly Moses, when, when Moses is being sent to Egypt to, to be used by God to deliver the Israelites. And Moses said, God, who am I? Who am I that I would do such a thing? And, I could, and God says, I'm with you. I love that response. You're someone I'm with, Moses, okay? And, okay, God, but who am I going to say sent me? Like, who, whose authority am I coming in? And God said, tell them I am who I am has sent you. I am who I am. And then later on in Moses' life, he says, God, I want to know who you are. I want to see your glory. And you have this incredible story in the book of Exodus where God reveals himself to Moses. But how does God do it? Well, the Bible tells us that God 
shows Moses what he's like by proclaiming his name. His name, his character, that's what it meant. In that culture, your name wasn't just something that was like hipster and cool and sounded right and stood out around the crowd. Your name, it spoke to identity, it spoke to activity, it spoke to destiny. So, so when God says to us that I am gracious, that's my name, we can trust in the fact that that's what he's like. It's what he's named. And then we have Jesus and the Savior he's named. He's named Jesus. Um, the word Jesus, as we said, it means to save, Savior. He will save his people from our sins. This is such an important name. This is a name that is trying to get down to, to business, that's trying to get past every confusion, every, every misconception about God. God wants us to know what he's like. So when he sends his son into the world, he says, here's his name, Jesus, Savior, now, remember, Jesus, the Bible tells us, is God manifest in the flesh. He's God revealed as a person. If you want to know what God is like, you can read in Exodus about God's name. You could also study the life of Jesus. When you look at Jesus, you get a great picture of what God is like. Paul tells us in Colossians that he is the, he is the image of the invisible God, or the photograph, the snapshot, the icon from which we get Nikon photographs. He's the image of God. Uh, Hebrews tells us that he is the expressed image of his person. You want to know what God is like? Look at Jesus. The Bible tells us that God demonstrated his own love through us through Jesus dying on the cross. He's the revelation of God. And here's what God wants us to know about who he is. He's Jesus. He's a savior. He's a savior. Uh, no matter what you're confused about today, maybe you're unsure of who God is and what he's like, uh, the one thing that I think God wants you to know this Christmas is that God is your savior. That's what we see here. We see this command to name Jesus what he's called, well, his name Jesus, and there's a reason. That name comes with a claim. Did you see verse 21? For he will save his people from their sins. This is amazing. This is the good news of the gospel coming into history. This God, he sends his son to show us what he's like, and he doesn't reveal to us a God who rejects us in our sins, but who's come to save us in our sins. And that's amazing because when you, when you study what sin is, when you understand what sin is, sin is not just like oopsie-daisy. I blew it. I stole a cookie from the cookie jar. Was it me? Couldn't be. Then who? Something like that, right? When you study sin biblically, what you understand is that sin, as David said, is something that we commit against God and God alone. Sin, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Sin is this breaking of our communion and relationship with God. Sin is an offense towards a holy God. And this is so counterculture. It's, it's, so, it's so foreign to us as humans. When people sin against us, our natural tendency is to reject them and to push them away. But this is a God who has not come to reject us in our sins, but to save us from our sins. The Bible says in Romans 5 that where sin abounded, grace abounded so much more. God has more love and grace than you do sin. That's good news. Why? Because we got a lot of sin. But good news to know this God is abundant in grace. And so it reveals God to us as a savior through Jesus. And it's First Timothy that tells us this a little bit more in detail. It says, for this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our savior. Notice this, who desires all men to be saved. 
and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man, Jesus Christ. I just love that, that Paul's just like, Jesus is the man, right? The man, Jesus Christ. This is the mediator between God and man. This is the Savior born into the world that's here to bridge the gap between us and God. This God sends his son, tells Joseph, name him Jesus. I want everybody to know that I'm a Savior. I want everyone to know that my desire is for not human beings to live stuck in their sin, but to be saved from their sin. Why shouldn't they? I've provided a mediator. People don't need to go to church to be right with me. They don't need to stand before some high political or spiritual figure and confess something. They can come right to God through Jesus. Solus Christus, Christ alone. This is the good news of, of who God is. He's a savior. Uh, but, but I think it's so much more than that. I think sometimes we can look at a verse like this and for me growing up in the church and hearing the word salvation all the time and you know I grew up in like a heavy altar call culture like every weekend was sermon and altar call and it's a great thing. So a lot of people come to faith in Jesus through that. But then like as a kid I remember in youth group and I became a youth pastor and experienced this firsthand but I always felt so bad for the youth minister whenever no one came forward to his altar call. Like all the money he spent on pizza and Mountain Dew and still no one. And there is this feeling of like, I think growing up, because I saw so much, uh, so many human beings giving like public invitations. And I, man, I've, for a lot of us who've grew up in a culture like that, I've got to see so many people come to new life in Jesus, which is awesome. But then there's also, like, as a kid, you're just, like, kind of hypercritical, and you're just like, this party's not really growing. What's going on? Nobody's coming forward. And it can kind of create a view of God where, like, God wants all people to be saved. It's what he wants. It's who he is. But it's almost like God sent out all these invitations to his birthday party, and nobody wants to come. That's how we can think of God and salvation. God's just like, man, I really want to save. Please, please be saved. Now, certainly, certainly, uh, scripture and following Jesus should create within our hearts this sense of calling people to come. You got to come to know Jesus. The way Paul says it in 2 Corinthians 5, it says that when we share the gospel, it should be as though God is pleading through us. Be reconciled to God. But let us not misconceive God to be this powerless Savior that only gives invitations, that wants all men to be saved. Here's what's amazing about Jesus. You shall call his name Jesus, for he, what, will save his people from their sins. He, he'll do it. Jesus being called the Savior is not just like a cool Christian title. Like, what do we call him? The Savior works. It's a description of who he is and what he does. Sometimes we can have titles in life that we don't actually have the position and the power to fulfill. Not Jesus. Jesus is called the Savior because he's mighty to save. That's what it says in Zephaniah chapter uh, 3, verse 17. The Lord your God is in your midst. The mighty one will save. He's not called a Savior for no reason. Amen? It's based on who he is. It's based on the truth of what he does. He doesn't only have the title of Savior. He has the power to save. I love the NIV says that he is a mighty warrior who saves. Not some middle school kid that sent out some invitations to his birthday party that no one showed up to. A bunch of declines, not a lot of accepts. 
This is a God who is a savior. Let's get this straight. Who first and foremost, in his heart, he loves the world. For God so loved the world. And he wants all people who are in sin to be saved from their sin. All men to be saved. I saw a blog recently, and it was, I think it was like one of these um, hyper-theological sites. And the question was, does God want all men to be saved? And there was like this discussion board on it. Now, I'm not going to get into like nitpicking theology here. But I'm a simple guy. He desires all men to be saved. Why is there a discussion board about this? Well, here's what that really means. When God desires all men to be saved. Okay, listen. God desires, let's not add anything to this, all men to know him. How does that work out in space and time and who he chooses? And how? God desires all men to be saved. Let's understand this. The people in your life, Paul said in Romans 10, my heart's desire and prayer for Israel is to be saved. The people in your life that you ache for their salvation, God, God aches for their salvation. More than we ever could, more than we could ever muster. God longs for people to be saved according to the word of God. And, and he's mighty to save. And he does it. The people often we least expect, like Paul's, like, like us. Now, that's what Jesus reveals to us. Now, I said also go to Luke chapter 2. Go to Luke chapter 2. I said put your finger there. Um. In light of this God who has the passion and the power to save, I want us to look back here in Luke 2. We're not going to read through this narrative again. We've gone through it in detail. Um, I want to pull out, I think, some insight here as to how God saves. And this whole time, I don't want this to just be an educational message. Let's, let's embrace the truth of God's word today in light of the people in our lives that we're praying would come to know Jesus, okay? In Luke 2, you know what we have? We have three people who God brings to Jesus. Three people. Uh, we've been looking at them. It's the shepherds, it's a man named Simeon, and it's a woman named Anna, on paper, they have a lot of things out of sorts. They don't have anything in common. But the one thing they all have in common here in Luke 2, we've looked at them, is they were all people that came before Jesus, that God brought to Jesus. Now, what's interesting is that they all come different ways. God brings them to Jesus in different ways. But I think there's a complete picture here. If, I could kinda, if you can humor me for a second, to see the application here, I think we see some, some practical ways that God brings people to be saved with his passion and power to save, here is how he does it. Here is how God brings people to Jesus. The first characters we saw were the shepherds. And so look at Luke 2, verse 8. It says, Now there were in the same country shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. This is after the birth of Jesus. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were greatly afraid, as would we be as well. Then the angel said to them, do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy. Do not be afraid, for I bring you good tidings, a good message of great joy, which will be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. This is where it starts. 
When it comes to God's passion and power to save, Jesus the Savior, we see through the shepherds how God brings people to Jesus simply through the power of the gospel. The power of the gospel. That's what we have here in Luke chapter 2. We have the power of the gospel at work. We have a bunch of shepherds, blue-collar workers out in the field. And how are they brought to Jesus? Well, they were expecting certain death and really bad news in the face of these, the holiness of these angels. Instead, they were met with good news. They were met with great joy. That's a message for all people that there's been a Savior who is born. That's a great way to... What's the gospel message? God sent a Savior. It's not a great little gospel message wrapped up in a few words. God sent a Savior. This is the good news of the gospel that we see they go on to investigate further. The power of the message that God sent a Savior. It tells us in Romans 1.16, Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, the good news of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek and even the shepherds. I'm not ashamed of this gospel because the message of this gospel is that God, for some reason, wasn't ashamed of me to call me his child. So Paul says, I'm not ashamed of this good news. It's good news. That's what gospel means, good news, uh, heralding something that that's, brings joy to those who hear it, really good news. The war has been won through Christ. It's the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. The gospel message of Jesus Christ, that though we were unrighteous, through Jesus, we can become righteous. We are declared righteous because he gifts to us the righteousness of Christ. God gifts us the righteousness of Christ. When Christ went to the cross, the Bible teaches that after he fulfilled all righteousness, he went to the cross and he became our sin on the cross. He was put there, our sin was put upon him, and he was punished for our sin so that today we could be called the righteousness of God in him. Jesus got our records so that we could get his clean slate. And he rose from the dead. He's sitting at the right hand of God. And the Bible teaches that whoever calls upon him, whoever looks to him, can be saved. How? By believing, by faith. This is the good news of the gospel. You can be right with God. What do I need to do? Trust in Christ. What do I got to do to be right with God? Jesus did it all. Receive the greatest Christmas gift you could ever receive, which is a reconciled, made right relationship with God through Jesus. This is the good news of the gospel, and this is the power of God unto salvation. Um, there's a power in the gospel that God blesses, that God anoints. Every one of us, we've come to a relationship with God because the gospel unleashed a power in our lives to save us. Uh, Paul tells it this way in 1 Corinthians 2. He says, when he came to the church in Corinth, he says, when I came to you, I didn't come with eloquence or human wisdom when I proclaimed to you about the testimony of God. He said, for I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified, the gospel. I came to you in weakness with great fear and trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive PhD words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. Again, this is the power of the gospel. Now, Paul also says this in 2 Corinthians 4. He says, when we're preaching, this is something we're called to preach. We don't preach ourselves. This is the gospel. But we preach Christ Jesus the Lord. This, this is what we're sent to do, right? When we go around, we don't preach the gospel of how awesome we are. you got to become like me. I'm a pretty great guy. Look at my life. Don't you want this life? 
okay? Because we know there's the bad and the ugly behind all that. We don't preach ourselves. We don't proclaim our own righteousness. We preach Christ. We preach the righteousness of God in and through him. And there's a power in that, as Paul says. When I come to you, he says, I came to the church, and I didn't try to, you know, like, like uh, trick you into believing into God. Believing God. You know, like, oh, well, you know, if you call now kind of thing. Like, you know, I didn't try to get you to kind of like twist the words or, or compromise the message so that you can somehow, I don't know, come forward or pray a prayer. I preached the truth of the gospel. I preached the whole message. And it, leads, it leads to a demonstration of the Spirit's power and people get saved. Now, we know this. Mark 16 tells us that we are commissioned to go into all the world and preach this gospel to every creature, which is awesome. Here we have angels preaching the gospel to some shepherds. But now there's not angels going all around the world preaching the gospel. There's the church. There's Christians. What's amazing about this is, um, you know, the way that we preach the gospel is different than angels preach the gospel. We preach it as recipients of it. We preach it as those who have experienced it. Here we have angels preaching the good news, but we've been sent to declare the message of the gospel. So we need to see that first. I think we need to see the power of it. But I want to say this about the gospel. Uh, the gospel is a message that I want you to write this down that must be heard and seen. It must be heard and seen. It's been called a show-and-tell ministry, a show-and-tell ministry. It's got to be heard, and it's got to be seen. Someone hearing the gospel, hearing the gospel, doesn't just mean that you said it. It means that they understand it, okay? It needs to be heard. In fact, Romans 10 says that this is how salvation happens. It happens through faith. But how does faith happen? It happens through hearing the word of God through hearing the gospel. I think an example of this, we look, we're looking at these different people who were brought to Jesus, but you have the, the wise men. They were brought to Jesus through a star in the sky, which was their world. That, that, that's, that they were astrologers. That was the world that they operated in. And this, isn't this amazing that God chose to get these people to Jesus. God chose to enter into their world. Paul says it, Paul says it this way. He says, I become all things to all men that I might win them. So, so God goes, okay, you're into stars. Okay, I'll use stars to bring you to Jesus. Oh, you skateboard. Okay, well, let's use skateboarding to bring you to Jesus. Oh, you're into food. Me too. <laughs> let's get some comida. And we'll use food. Whatever it is. I love this. There's nothing other than sin. There's nothing that God won't use to bring people to Jesus. He'll step into, and this is what Christmas is about, right? That Jesus moved into the neighborhood. <laughs> he came into our world to bring us to God. You know, to preach an accurate gospel is an expression of our love for God. We, because we love God, we don't want to compromise his message. We, we don't want to make it about behavior. We don't want to make it about if you come to Jesus, you get a new car. We don't want to make it about anything except for the righteousness of God through him, right with God by faith. And we love God, so we don't compromise that message. But because we also love people, Effective evangelism is not just preaching, but it's also in, it also involves a desire for reaching. I see a lot of, I feel like a lot of mission today, I'm just going to ramble for a second. A lot of, I see a lot of mission today in the local context, just being a lot of Christians preaching what they've always heard. And they're just kind of talking, but there's no listening. A key component to someone hearing what you're saying is you kind of got to listen to them and know where they're at, Right? It's a lot of evangelism today. It's just saying, saying, and, and it's like, 
It's like if you spoke a different language than someone. And you, you go to them and you say, you're in another country, and you say, hey, do you know where the nearest bathroom is? And they go, no habla inglés. And you go, do you know where the nearest bathroom is? Okay. And they just look at you and they go, still, no habla inglés. <laughs> Shouting the same message doesn't mean they're going to hear it. And so this was the miracle. Remember Acts 2 when the Holy Spirit falls on the church and what happens? Supernaturally, people start speaking in other tongues. You know what the key factor of that miracle was? It wasn't to draw attention to the people and what the supernatural manifestation. It was a ministry that God was accomplishing. It says that those that were around the church as they were speaking these other languages, it says that each one heard in their own language about the wonderful works of God. Because we love people, we seek to take this gospel message and we seek to translate it into people's language. Some people speak the language of being burned by the church. That's their language. So it doesn't matter what you say or how loud you say it. There's deeper issues that you got to listen for. And, and it, man, there's so, many other, there's so many other versions of this. This is called, uh, the big word for this is called contextualization contextualizing the gospel. As Christians, we need to be really good at, at understanding how to read the Bible. We also need to be really good at, at knowing how to read culture. And so today, let me just say, like in our generation, my generation, what you have today in the church is you have um, us moving further and further towards what's called a post-Christian culture. Do we know about this? We know that the Bible belt is slowly being taken off the pants here, okay? Um, do we know this? that we're moving closer and closer to more of a European kind of culture, uh, a culture that you have in the UK where Christianity is something of the past. We've moved through it. But what's really unique about post-Christian culture is it's not just a I've moved, you know, I wasn't a Christian, my, then I was, and now I'm not. But often the post-Christian culture, it's a reaction against Christian culture. You ever, have you noticed this? So people are like, no, 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 okay? I've seen the passion of the Christ. I know, the, I know what happened, all right? And, and, it, and it's been reduced largely for people. They look at Christianity and they just associate with politics or, or whatever they, they've been burned by. And so this is, a, this is a tough time. And if we really care about people coming to know Jesus, we're going to have to pray through and think through, what are we doing to reach them? Are we just saying, come to church and hear the message? Now, in the book of Acts, you see all sorts of different forms of evangelism. You see large group evangelism. I'm praying tomorrow and people come to Christmas. Like, like I'm kind of like speaking against myself. Tomorrow I'm going to preach the gospel to a bunch. Bring your friends tomorrow. And I'm like preaching against it. But, you know, there's so many different forms of it. There's preaching the gospel like this. There's what well, you have in Acts where Paul brought the gospel to cultures that hadn't heard it yet. And it was kind of like street evangelism. But you also have this kind of evangelism that you, in the book of Acts, and especially with the life of Jesus, that you don't see as much today, which is, um, it, it involves patience. We want power in our evangelism. What about patience in your evangelism? You know what Jesus would do? He would go and he would uh, eat with non-believers. And it wasn't like, okay, now that you've eaten with me, let me share the, the Romans road to you, and if you do not uh, reciprocate, then this is our last meal, all right? <laughs> it's been said that in the book of Luke, Jesus is either going to a meal, at a meal, or leaving a meal. He ate with sinners and the same people over, he entered into relationship with them. 
which is harder. It's so much easier. Now, it's scary to go up to someone on the street and be like, hey, what, you know where you're going to go on your diet? You know, that's scary. I'm terrified. I'm like, I'll stand up in here and preach a sermon over, go up to one person and be like, are you going to have, where are you going when you die? Like, I, I get terrified. And some of you have that evangelistic gift. But there's a, there's a challenge in going, hey, I want you to, um, I, 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 want, I want to get to know you as a friend. I want to hear what you've been through. And I want to ask God to give me discernment from the Spirit to know where does the gospel come to bear on your life? Where does the gospel set you free? It's the same message, but it's almost different as how it applies. The gospel to the drug addict, it's the same message, but it's different than it is to the self-righteous. Now, this is the kind of evangelism that God has called us to. Again, effective evangelism. It requires, again, entering into a relationship. It requires listening, taking time. You know, a simple like, way to evaluate this is you might be a great evangelist on the street, but what are your neighbor's names? And where are those places that you're consistently around where people can actually, you can spend time with them and, and you can let your light shine to them and not just a message be told to them. A lot of people today, they hear the gospel message and a lot of people actually know the information about it. Like again, they've seen the movie, The Passion of the Christ or, or whatever it may be. So who are some people that you can experience some life and relationship with? Because this is so important. The gospel needs to be heard. And for it to be heard, Christians gotta listen to where does the gospel, where is it understood? Which area of your life does this apply? But it also needs to be seen. This is huge. So many non-believers aren't Christians, not because they haven't heard the gospel, but because sadly they haven't seen the gospel. Like we talk about the love of God all day long, but God wants to raise up a generation of people who are different because of God's love. And people go, I have arguments, but I can't say anything against your life. You have this confidence that comes from something outside of you. It's got to be seen, and both of these require more than just maybe a gospel track on the street. I want you to hear me again. I'm not bashing those forms of evangelism, all biblical. The thing that we need to do as people who love God and love people is ask, Lord, how can I be most effective to the people you put in my life? so that they can hear and they can see. You know, that's what the shepherds end up doing. Remember the gospel they heard? Well, they were invited to come see it. Come see what you're being told. And man, less and less people are gonna come to Jesus because they responded to a pastor's altar call. I'm just telling you, this is where we're headed. Less and less. More and more people are gonna come to faith in Jesus because their neighbors showed them a gospel that they'd never seen before. More and more people are going to come to Jesus because they're now seeing what they're hearing about. They're going, wow, the way that you love, the way that you raise your family, the way that you live your life, the gospel needs to be seen, needs to be heard. Nonetheless, there's power in it. Let's spend five minutes on the last two points, okay? We have Simeon. These are shorter. Simeon's a man who we see was brought to Christ, it tells us, by the power of the Spirit. This is huge, okay? It tells us in verse 25, And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was just and devout, and he was waiting for the consolation of Israel. And notice this, And the Holy Spirit was upon him, and it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Verse 27 says, So he came by the Spirit. How did he come to Jesus? by the Spirit, into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and he blessed God. And he recited this incredible song. Now, Simeon's a man, the Bible tells us, we looked at this guy, 
He represented, what was the season? The season of waiting. But Simeon here is a guy who the Bible tells us he came to Jesus by the Spirit. This is a huge point about salvation, how people come to Jesus. People come to Jesus through Christians proclaiming, contextualizing, and demonstrating the gospel. But people will only come to Jesus through that by the Spirit. This is foundational. Um, the way that Scripture teaches it, I love this. Psalm 3.8 says, salvation belongs to the Lord. In other words, the person that you love and that you want to see to come to know Christ, the person that you love and that you're, you're, you want to preach the gospel, you want to contextualize the gospel, you, want to, you have a passion to reach that person or people group, salvation belongs to God. You and I cannot save anyone. We can't even save ourselves. Salvation is of the Lord. It's what God does, and let's remember, it's what God does. It's what he does. The Bible teaches this understanding of salvation, that it's the work of God. Uh, just like a dead corpse couldn't resurrect itself, none of us could resurrect ourselves. It's the work of God. So, you know, I, I noticed this as I was studying. I found three no ones in regards to salvation uh, throughout the Gospels and the Scriptures that show us how involved God is in salvation. So first, first of all, the one we all know, John 14, 6 says, I'm the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. This is like entry-level VBS, okay? Jesus saves. <laughs> you know, Jesus saves, bro. That's like a t-shirt. I want to light on fire sometimes. But um, I'm the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to the Father except through me. This is the simple point. First and foremost, we how many of us know Jesus is kind of involved in salvation? Certainly, he's the Savior. We have another no one, though, in John 6, which says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. So no one can come to the Father except through Jesus. Salvation's of the Lord. We can't build our own bridge to God. Additionally, no one can come to Jesus to go to the Father unless the Father draws him. This is the Godhead at unison, in unison, working to accomplish salvation. Let me show you one more. It's the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 12, 3 says, No one, third no one, can say that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Can I tell you what a relief this will take off your shoulders in your mission, in your evangelism? I've heard some people wrongly go, then why would I ever evangelize if God's going to do it? That sounds like a very unregenerated perspective. For someone who's been so impacted by the gospel, what we should seek to do is go, Lord, you're the one who saves. You've saved me. You desire all men to be saved. I want to have that same desire. And as I go, there's this great confidence that fuels my evangelism. That everywhere I go, I'm going to preach, and here's the confidence I have. No matter how good or how bad my gospel presentation is, you're the one who saves. You're going to do it. It's what you do. It's who you are. No one can say that Jesus is Lord, and here's how he does it. He does it by the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit of God, the third person of the triune Godhead that accomplishes our salvation. This is such good news for those who are saved. You didn't do it. God did it. So you don't secure it, God secures it. You can't lose something you didn't earn in the first place, amen? This is the message of God, that he does it. And, and specifically, you see Simeon here, he's brought to Jesus by the Spirit. So we preach the gospel, we contextualize, we gotta hear where they're at, it's so the gospel can be heard, we demonstrate it, but we trust at the end of the day that salvation of the Lord, is of the Lord, it's something God accomplishes by his Spirit. This is all over the New Testament. John 16 shows us that it's the Holy Spirit who convicts. 
I wish Christians would do a lot more proclaiming and a lot less trying to convict people. You know how bad you do you know how falling you are? How mad God is at you? Nowhere in the Bible does it say go into all the world and condemn everyone. It says preach the good news. It's the job of the Spirit. The goodness of God leads a man to repentance. And the Spirit of God, John 16 tells us, convicts the world. This is such good news. We need God to convict our own hearts. How are we going to convict someone else? We proclaim the gospel, the Spirit convicts. John 3.8 tells us that we become born again, regenerated by the Spirit. So does Titus chapter 3, verse 4 through 6. It says it's the renewal, the rebirth, the regeneration of the Spirit. Uh, Romans 8, 15, and 16 says that we receive the Spirit of adoption by the Holy Spirit. To where we have this, this um, 